Thank you. Now it is. Thank you very much. So that's, what's, that's sort of what's coming up. Questions? All ready? Don't forget the quiz if you haven't taken it already. All right. Um, picture of the day for today. All the colors of the sun. So somehow they knew we were talking about the sun. So that's what we're working on in class. That's what they put up there. Uh, this is a spectrum, the entire spectrum of the sun. So going from red, very deep reds, and off into the infrared, way up at the top, down into the violets and ultraviolet, way down at the bottom. And we looked at some, we looked at some emission spectra in class. This is an absorption spectrum, what we see of the sun, and really telling us what the outer layers, at least, of the sun are made up of. Each of those lines corresponds to a specific transition for an individual element. And we can identify uh, the vast majority of the elements in the periodic table here in the sun. Now, they're not all identified in here. Uh, certain ones are, are known. There's the very bright red line of hydrogen. You can see very faintly up here at the top kind of blurred off in there. Uh, there's a couple other lines of hydrogen down towards the blue section. Some of the big thicker lines are the hydrogen ones. And there are things like uh, sodium and mercury and other, other lines that we see that are very prominent in the visible portion of the spectrum. But even though we see all of these lines, the sun is still almost all hydrogen and helium. I pulled up a set of the numbers here just, just to compare because I usually give you something off the top of my head. I'm usually pretty close, but if we pull up the abundances of the sun, if you count numbers of atoms, how many atoms there are, if you grabbed 100 atoms at random out of the sun, 92 of them would be hydrogen. I usually said about 90%, so I was pretty close. About 7.8% of them would be helium, so 7 or 8 of them would be helium. And what's left over is that's all these other little bits, all these other little rounding areas. So if you just grab a random atoms out of the sun, 99.8% of the time it's going to be hydrogen or helium. That two-tenths of a percent of a time it will be some, it'll end up being something else. So all of the other, men, other elements are there. Uh, many of them have been identified through some of those spectral lines. But in terms of abundances and what percentages they are, it's very, very tiny. These are the next most abundant elements. So anything other than carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, magnesium, silicon, sulfur, iron would be even lower than, than that. And no, we don't. No, we don't need to update anything. So just wanted to go back and show you that. And it worked out quite well as we're talking about the sun. The other column here is actually, if you do it by mass, if you go by mass of the sun, because the hydrogen atom is so light, it's not as much of a percentage of mass. And the helium becomes much more because it's four times the mass of a hydrogen atom. So still, in terms of mass, hydrogen and helium take up 98.4. Thank you. 98.4% of the entire mass of the sun is still hydrogen and helium. So that's sort of just what is being shown, what is being shown here. Even though you're seeing all of these other lines, Still, the vast majority of the sun is hydrogen and helium. The sun just isn't the right temperature to really have their lines be the most dominant thing in its spectrum. If the sun were a little bit hotter, we'd see the hydrogen lines even stronger than they are. And if it got even hotter than that, we'd actually be of temperatures where we could really excite helium and cause it to absorb or emit radiation.
But the sun is just too cool to really see that. So we see some of these other elements actually become more prominent and more prominent than their abundances. How much there is of them in the sun would really show. Questions? Questions? Like this? I mean, so if you have a spec. Yeah, you'd look at you'd look at we looked at the spectra here, right? We looked at the emission spectra. So you saw hydrogen had a certain pattern, and you'd look for that in a specific wavelength. So if you're looking for hydrogen in the sun, you'd look at that specific wavelength. Is that line there? Would you want to identify it based on just one line? No. You'd want to find that pattern. So you'd want to say, not only do I see this hydrogen line. But I also see, where's the other one? Down in here someplace, probably this one here. I also see this hydrogen line. This, I see that pattern. I should see this set of five lines if I'm looking for helium. Don't go by just the one because could there be something else that's emitting at that same wavelength or very close to it? Yeah, there could be. So you'd want to look for the entire pattern. Uh, the calcium lines here in the yellow. A very prominent pair of lines. You look for those kind of patterns that you see and identify them with the wavelengths that we know from here on Earth that we can measure. Anything else? No, no. All right. Oh, well, let's go from the sun to the sun. What a change. Wow. And we were looking at this one, and I said I'd come back here for a minute next time just to remind you what we were looking at when we looked at the solar cycle. We had two cycles. We had an 11 year sunspot cycle where the sunspots come and go. So you get lots of sunspots. Uh, they increase and you reach a peak and then 11 years later, about, plus or minus a year or so, you reach another peak and then again and then, well, there's a glitch there, but again and again every, every 11 years or so you reach a peak in the number of sunspots. But that's not really the entire solar cycle. It's really a 22-year cycle because the sun flips its magnetic field every time. And its north magnetic pole goes from the northern hemisphere of the sun to the southern. And the two and this northern and southern poles, magnetic poles of the sun actually flip every 11 years. And that leaves us with a 22-year complete magnetic cycle of the sun. So 22 years later, you're back to the complete same configuration that you had previously. The other thing that was shown on this chart, this one goes back since you know, time of Galileo back here, first observing sunspots, and astronomers looked for them after that, because they'd been discovered and there were drawings of them. There was a very low incidence range here of about 50 years where there were hardly any sunspots. Astronomers were still observing and they'd see occasionally you'd see some, but you can tell that the numbers are very low. In fact, the peaks there were as low as low or lower than some of the minima, the minimum numbers that were seen later on. So there was just a time there when there was very few sunspots for an extended period of time and the sun was unusually inactive. Didn't have a lot of activity and that what meant the sun was not putting out as much energy and would have an effect here on Earth in terms of its climate. Yeah? Why do you think that was? It's a good question. I don't know. Probably will. It happened once. It'll happen again. Does it happen every couple hundred years and are we due for one now? Maybe. Maybe it'll be a thousand years from now. Maybe only, but but I'm, it's something internal to the sun that 
something in that magnetic field just completely resets and takes a longer time. Now to the sun, what's 50 years? Big, big deal. 50 years out of, 50, out of 5 billion? 10 billion years? Big deal. But to us, you know, it's a big thing. I'm sorry, did you? Something external to the sun? Yeah, like say something entered, entered into the sun's atmosphere that stores magnetic field, like a comet crashing into it or something. It would, have ta it would have taken a lot more than that, I think, to really have changed the sun's magnetic field. And I think with the telescopes at the time, we probably would have noticed anything too. Because don't forget, the telescopes were just coming into view. They were really being used to look at everything. So I think we would have noticed anything that would have caused that kind of a that kind of trouble. I mean, a comet going into the sun will be a momentary glitch, as in, you know, days. You know, we had a comet that crashed into Jupiter. We could see the scars on it for a week, and they were gone. The sun would be even, would be even less, less affected. But it is a good question as to whether something else, it would have to be something really massive to disrupt the magnetic field that much, and that would have had a much larger effect on the Earth. All right, well, let's go look at some of the active sun. Some nice pictures here. Um, the areas, the most, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, since like, there was like, less amount of solar flares, like, was it like, cooler? It was cooler, yes. That was the little ice age. It's called a mini ice age. You know, not, not a bitterly cold, big glaciers coming, but it was unusually cold, in, especially in Europe at the time. It was unusually cold, too. Not less activity, uh, less energy coming from the sun, cooler temperatures here on, on Earth. So, sunspots are, in this case, when we look at it in this image, they're the more active areas, or the brighter areas in this image. And that's where all the activity is going on. So when we talk about the active sun, it all has to do with things that are going on around the sunspots. And you see the images here. You can also, you can see a little bit of the tracing out of the magnetic field, how it kind of loops around. This is a solar prominence with energy being lifted. It's essentially the magnetic field lifting material off the surface of the sun. So it lifts that material in this kind of loop fashion and it will then fall or rain back down on the sun as the magnetic field weakens and slowly uh, passes through. But it actually lifts material, can actually lift material off the surface of the sun. Not, not quite. The, so the prominences, the material, some of it will leave, but most of that is still confined to the sun. So it kind of goes up into a big loop, and then it falls back down on the sun. It's not quite energetic enough to really throw the material out. We're coming to those. There are a couple, there are some more things that are more energetic than, than this that will actually throw that material, much more material out. But a solar prominence is really just a big kind of loop on the sun, and that material then will rain. If you want rain, liquid hydrogen plasma raining back onto the sun, if you want to think of that as a rain, it'll rain back down onto the surface. So most of this ends up being confined to the sun and doesn't come out to affect us here on Earth. But we see that kind of effect, and it's usually associated with the sunspots. So you see one part of it here coming down to a brighter area or a sunspot feature. Probably the other end is located in another sunspot feature. We just can't see it around the edge of the sun there. So large sheets of, ja of gas that are pushed up, pushed up by the magnetic fields of the sun. And for the most part, in a prominence, it doesn't really, all of it, not a lot, a lot of material escapes out. Now, if you have more energy, 
you can actually get a solar flare. That's an eruption or an explosion. A prominence, they're similar, except for the time scales. So a prominence comes out and it slowly pushes the material up. Okay? Nice and leisurely. Might take it a few days or a week and slowly pushes it up and gives this material. This flare will do the same thing, but it'll do it in seconds. So instead of, you know, nice and easy pushing that material up, it's boom. And that's where material starts getting shot out from the sun. So those are the ones, this is the, this is the solar flare, is what will actually cause the aurora here on Earth, the intense aurora, if that happens to be directed towards us. So if the Earth happened to be out in that direction at the time, and that material comes towards the Earth, then we would be able to see that effect. We'd be able to see that in terms of aurora, in terms of increased activity here on the Earth. So a solar flare, very similar and similar um, mechanism to what forms the prominence. You can see some of it looping back here, but you also see a lot more material just kind of thrown off. So a big lump here that would be expelled out into space. Most of the time, that never comes near the Earth. Okay? Most of the time, you know, the Earth might be off in this direction over here. Don't forget, we've got a big three-dimensional solar system. And it might get thrown off in that direction or thrown off in some other direction and will never come near the Earth and won't affect us. The cases where it does, where the sun happens with that, that flare happens to be pointing towards the Earth when it occurs, is when we get the excess, um, excess activity, excess auroral activity. The stronger the flare, the more activity we will get. So you can have, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. You can get those two. Those are even bigger. Those are even beyond the flares. Those are beyond the flares. You can get like an X-class flare or the big flares. A coronal mass ejection is something. It's my next slide, but yeah, it's something oh, else. I, that's, a, that's okay. That's I good. Heard, I heard, um, I saw a documentary where one hit in Canada mm -hmm. or something uh, like 50 years ago and it blew out all the transformers and yeah. like blacked out the entire area. So that can happen. That could happen, yes. Yeah. If it's huge and if it's and they and they occur all the time. Right. It's gotta be but it's gotta be directed at us too. So don't forget we're this little tiny I didn't do the Earth Sun system here. We did a calculation on that, didn't we? That's the one we did the calculation on, but you didn't really actually measure it. It's we're a very tiny cross, so it has to be aimed pretty much right at us. It's like but yeah. A, a fly with a gun. It's like very hard, but it's at, at about a mile away, yeah. No, not, not just in the room where, oh, maybe you got a mile away hit, hitting it. Yeah. So it happens. Obviously it does because we get, we get these. But yeah, the coronal mass eject, I'll talk about those a little bit in just a minute. But it's a similar process. You get these very intense flares that are really throwing material out off of the surface of the sun and could come towards the Earth. Now, the coronal mass ejections, since we were just talking about them, there they are, um, are even more... So even more intense, intense material is being really shoved out of, the, out of the corona of the sun and being shoved off towards the Earth. That really is really good. It's got, a very, it's got a magnetic field actually associated with it as it strikes into the Earth's magnetic field. It really distorts our magnetic field and allows these, these particles to come down and into the Earth's atmosphere. So we can then see in these very intense coronal mass ejections, you can get aurora at much lower latitudes. Usually you see the aurora up in Alaska, you see pictures from Canada and all of that, 
when you get these very intense ones, you can start to see, you know, aurora here. That's not too bad. We're not that far south. But you can actually get them down in, you know, some of the bigger ones we had were down in Georgia. Seeing the aurora, you don't usually see, you don't usually see the northern lights down in Georgia. Uh, the most intense ones that I've heard about, in fact, there was a big one, 1859 or so, that you actually could see the aurora in Hawaii. Now, Hawaii is, what, at a latitude of about 20 degrees. So you're getting down close to the equator, but you're able, you're able to see the aurora there because it was so intense. And in fact, they said further north, the aurora was so bright that it, would, it was waking people up, waking campers up because you'd have that much light coming from the aurora. Usually it's just that nice glow, but you had a very intense aurora. That also caused damage. Uh, that actually started fires in like telegraph equipment. Okay, we didn't have any fancy electronics, 1850s, we didn't have any fancy electronics like we did today. So what would something like that do to our electronics today, you know, fry communication satellites? You know, you can harden them up against some of that to some extent, but only to some extent. The sun is much more powerful than we can ever dream of being, you know, right now. So if it decides to send a nice big coronal mass ejection right towards us, you know, it could wipe out and fry the communication satellites, you know, very, relatively easily if we were to get hit. And then we'd be, we'd be lost. What do we do without our cell phones, right? You know, we can't, without instant communication, you know, that's, and that's only recent, you know. 30 years ago, you didn't have it. Yeah, any, yeah. Any television satellites, anything else would be, it could, it could damage anything, any, any, any electronics. You know, fry computers, fry, you know, any electronic devices, which is just about everything nowadays. So, you know, toasters have electronics in them and everything else, you know. There's some fancy toasters that have more electronics in them than the computers that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon, you know. So, everything now is electronic, so that's, that's a problem with this. The other thing is, what can we do about it? Not nothing much at all. You know, we can't we can't go in and control the sun. We can't control and direct that anyplace else. The only thing we could do is, you know, he, he could do is try to harden, you know, electronics against that, and just to make them more, you know, better able to withstand that energy. Of course, you'd you'd have you'd you'd know that it was coming, and you'd have you know a day or two. But in a day or two, there's, you're not going to be able to redo anything in, in that kind of time. So, I mean, you can't, you know, reposition satellites. You know, you might have as it comes through, it would just completely fry. I mean, you see as it'll come through, it would completely get everything. So it's not just going to hit one side and the Earth will shield it. As it comes through, it'll wipe out anything on the other side as well. So yes, you'd have warning, but it's like one of those things you'd, not, you'd still never be able to do anything about it. You know. Question, yeah? I would assume, but I don't know the details of that, it but yeah. It would be, it would wipe out, you know, anyth anything electronic, which is what isn't right now, right. you know, would pretty much be, could, could be, and that would take a pretty intense one. So the type that might occur only every few hundred years or so, but, you know, when are we due? You know, maybe it'll be 500 years from now. Maybe it'll be next week, you know, who, who knows? That's the good question. All right. And then a couple other things. Let me just point out the solar wind. Uh, the typical cause of the aurora, the general aurora, is the solar wind. That is material escaping from the sun. 
and that escapes through the holes in the corona. You can see these darker areas. There are holes in the corona. They're actually areas where the magnetic field kind of expands outward. Most of the time it loops back down so particles can't flow off the sun. They won't go across these magnetic field lines. So if they try to come out this way, they're trapped. There are some areas where the magnetic field lines kind of wander out a lot further and then the particles are able to stream out into space. That's what we see as the solar wind and the sun is losing millions of tons of matter every day, every year due to the solar wind. It's such a tiny fraction of its mass that it makes no difference. It could lose that amount of matter for 10 billion years and we'd never even notice the difference. But we can see that here. We can see the solar wind. That's what causes the typical aurora that we see. The average everyday aurora, if you're up far in Alaska, if you're in Canada, that's what's causing the aurora, is the particles, normal particles from the sun. The intense aurora that we're seeing down, would see down here, would be from more of a solar flare, an outburst from the sun sending off more material. All right, so. And I mentioned this last time, I believe I talked about the corona and how it might change. I showed you an image before where it was kind of just a nice smooth, almost relatively smooth circle around the surface of the sun. Here shown during an eclipse. So the moon's blocking out the sun. In this case, when you're looking at the peak of the sunspot cycle, when there's the most sunspots, it doesn't look nice and smooth around there. There's big parts over here and parts over here. It's much more irregular when you get towards the peak. So the magnetic field is getting um, uh, much more tangled up and it's really affecting everything we see in the corona. So more material being able to stream out, we get more, so we'll get more outbursts and everything towards the solar peak. But that's the solar corona, that's just an image of what it might look like um, towards the peak of a sunspot cycle. At the lower points it would be a much lower, it would be a much lower, much smoother, almost a little circle around the edge of the moon. would be during the active period, yeah. It can occur any time that there's, you need sunspot activity of some kind. So you can get sunspots even during a minimum and you could get a coronal mass ejection then. But you need some kind of activity going on on the sun. It won't happen when the sun is completely quiet. All right, well let's do the last section here heading down back into the heart of the sun. Um, Energy, we need to supply all this energy to, the sun, energy to the sun, all the energy, everything that we see from it. We need a way of providing this much energy. And that was a problem for a long time, trying to figure out how you could, for you know, thousands of years, how could the sun give off this much energy? And how could it continually do it for billions of years? You know, now that we know how old the Earth and the sun are, how has the sun been able to do that for that long of a period of time? You know, no chemical reaction, even knowing the mass of the sun, you know, regular burning, you know, a big lump of coal, would last billions of years, would last even you know, hundreds or thousands of years. You need some source of energy that can provide the extreme amount of energy that we need. And what it is, and we've discovered probably about 100 years ago, was nuclear fusion. It was actually fusing atoms together to gain energy. Now, atoms don't normally like to fuse together. If you think about this upper image, you've got a proton here, positively charged. Okay, we're talking about the core of the sun. There's the electrons are there are no electrons are attached, so it's just a proton all by itself. This one is just another proton with a positive charge. You bring two positive charges together, what do they do? Boom, they want to push each other away. So you try to send these two protons together. We don't want to, we're pushing each, we're going away. 
In order to get them to collide and stick together, you need to send them at incredibly high velocities. So you have to really smash them together to break through that force. The, the electromagnetic force wants to repel them. If you can get them close enough, tiny fractions of a meter, you know, a millionth of a billionth of a meter, so really teeny tiny, then there's another force that kicks in. There is another force called the strong nuclear force that will actually bind them together. That's what holds the nucleus of an atom together. So if you can get them that close, if you move them fast enough that you can get them close enough together, there's another force that will kick in and cause them to stick together. It requires incredibly high temperatures, minimum of 10 million degrees, in order for that to happen. So in order to get them moving that close, that you can get them close enough that the strong force kicks in, you have to be moving at incredibly high temperatures. So the surface of the sun, about 6,000 degrees, not near hot enough. Surface of the sun is just transporting the energy that's produced in the core outward. Nothing else we're familiar with, you know, here on Earth is going to produce a temperature that high. Can we produce it? Can we produce fusion? Yes, but not at, you know, not at what the, the way the sun, not the way the sun, directly the way the sun is able to. Now what happens, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail in a coming slide, is that you take those two protons, when you've got them moving at high speeds, they smash together. So you take a positive charge coming here and a positive charge coming there, and you form a new element. Now eventually we're going to make helium, but it doesn't form helium all at once. The first thing it forms is deuterium. Deuterium is just like hydrogen, it has one proton and one neutron. So it's like a hydrogen atom, but it's, it's a little bit heavier. So it's heavy, high, heavier, heavier version of hydrogen. It's got two mass units here, but only one charge. So positive charge coming in, positive charge coming in. They stick together, and you have one positive charge coming out. You can't do that, right? You can't lose a charge. Car charge can't just disappear. Sort of like mass is conserved, energy is conserved. Well, the electrical charge has to be conserved too. So if you have two positive charges coming in, you have to have two positive charges coming out. So not only do you have one charge here, but you need another one. So one of the other things that comes out of this reaction, this beginning of the reaction, is a positron. Heard of a positron? Anyone? Anti-electron. Anti-electron. It's actually a piece of antimatter. So just an anti-electron. Well, anti-electron, as soon as it escapes out into the sun, what's it going to do? It's going to not decay, it's going to find an electron, right? Electron and positron, they annihilate each other and disappear and produce energy. So that positron is a big source of energy for the sun because once it forms, it does not move very far and it immediately finds an electron, annihilates it, so they're gone, gets rid of one positive charge, one negative charge, boom, a lot of energy produced. So that is a big source of the energy that comes out. So two protons come in, two positive charges, two positive charges come out, one in the deuterium atom, one in the positron. There's a neutrino there that I'll come back to later um, and talk about that a little bit as well. So one more particle, that has no charge to it. Now here's the whole cycle. Yuck, right? This is what the sun is doing billions of times, billions and billions and billions of times every second. So we looked at the first stage of this. We looked at two protons 
smashing together, forming a deuterium, forming a positron. That positron finds an electron and produces gamma rays. So pure energy produced. Now we need another step. We want to get up to helium. So deuterium now can hit another proton can hit that. So you have a deuterium atom coming here, a proton atom coming here, a proton coming here. They smash together. A little bit simpler here, you have two masses and one mass. You have one positive charge, one positive charge. What comes out is a helium atom, not the normal helium we're used to. It's a little bit lighter than the normal helium. It has two protons, just like the two that came in, and it has one neutron. So it's not the stable form of helium, but it is beginning to form helium atom there. So that's the first step. The second step forms these helium-3 atoms. If you do that a couple of times and you smash two helium-3 atoms together, you can smash those two. You can form helium-4, two protons, two neutrons, common everyday form of helium that we're used to. Right? So we used to fill up balloons is helium-4. So that's the common everyday helium that we see. Now you had two, char two positive charges on each of these. You only have two on the helium. So two of those protons just come back out. So they're re-released at very high speeds, again, and they continue the process. So these two protons, you know, loop back around and they go back into the process again and continue it. And that happens, you know, billions of billions and billions of times each second. It's only a little bit of energy that's released each time. Not very much, you know, put, put your little hamster in, the wheel, in his wheel and, you know, each little reaction is producing less energy than the little hamster or gerbil or whatever it is is producing. But when you do that many of them every single second for billions of years, you end up producing a lot of energy. So the idea here, again, is just that what you're doing in effect is you're taking four protons. The net effect is take these four protons smash them together in this process to form one helium nucleus. So you're turning hydrogen into helium and re releasing a little bit of energy in the process. The, am the amount of energy depends on the mass difference. Right? There's some amount of mass here. We know how massive a proton is. If you add up four of those and you compare it to the mass of the helium that comes out, you find out that the helium has a little bit less mass. So you lost a little bit of mass. We can't do that either, right? You can't lose mass. Yes, sir? Not, not yet. Not for a long time. But it will eventually happen. The helium will just sit there. The helium is just going to sit there for now. Yep. But that little, oh, yeah? Is this the kind of reaction that they're trying to simulate that huge thing uh, there are some things where they're smashing, th smashing together, but not really. I don't know if they're really trying. I mean, there's some places where they're simulating, I mean, being able to produce fusion. And we can do some of that. I'm not sure on that specific one. But that little bit of mass difference, just that little tiny bit. Again, we can't, we can't lose mass. But one equation in science that everybody's heard of, right? It's the one everyone's heard of. That's where this comes in. You can't lose mass, right? You can change it for, you can change it a little bit, you can switch it from one to the other, but you're not allowed to lose it. Well, yeah, you can in a nuclear reaction. You can convert mass and energy. They're just different forms of the same thing. So you can take mass and convert it to energy. You can take energy and convert it to mass. 
If you lose a little tiny bit of mass and you multiply that by c, which is the speed of light, big number, twice, that ends up producing a good amount of energy out of each reaction. So that little bit of mass ends up becoming a decent amount of energy. Again, not a whole lot, it's still in each reaction, but when you do billions upon billions of these reactions uh, every second, you get, you get the energy that's produced in the sun, the amount of energy that we need. Now, the other particle there that I mentioned was the neutrino. And I, I don't like putting that much text on one, sorry about that. Neutrino. Now you can guess, I told you already, it's, it's uh, no charge. You can probably guess that. It's neutral. It's like a neutron, N-E-U, neutrino. It actually means little neutral one. And neutrinos are very unusual particles in that they don't like to interact with anything. So when we formed those positrons, they immediately smashed into an electron and disappeared. The helium that's there is still constantly bumping up against each other. So you're, the helium's trying to fuse together like you were trying to, trying to get at. You know, the helium's trying to fuse together. Temperature's not hot enough yet. It will get there, but not yet. We've got about five billion years to wait. But that will happen. The neutrinos don't do that. So those, those, the helium's all trapped in the core of the sun. The hydrogen is trapped there. Nothing else can get out. These neutrinos don't like to interact with anything. In fact, they're streaming, th streaming through us right now. You know, hold up your finger and you've got billions of them streaming through your fingernail every second. They don't interact with anything, so they go right through us, they go right through the building, they go right through us, they go right through the entire Earth, and they don't interact with anything and they head out the other side. But the nice thing is, is that if we could figure out a way to detect them, if we could, then we can really see directly into the, into the core of the sun. What is the sun doing right now? I think I talked to you last time about how long it takes that energy to work its way out from the sun, center of the sun. It's not just, you know, minutes. It's not hours. It's not, it's many years, decade, 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 or sorry, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands years to work its way out from the center. What does the sun look like right now? What is it doing right now in the core? Well, if we could study these neutrinos, that would give us a good way to be able to understand it. We could see the picture of the sun as it is right now. Because these things can travel through us and they can travel through the Earth. Well, they can also travel through the entire sun. You know, at essentially the speed of light. So they zip their way out through the surface, through the sun, and come right to us. Problem is being able to detect them. They don't want to interact with the sun. If you can tra travel through half the sun, right, from the center where you're being formed to the outer layers, they don't want to interact with that. How are we going to be able to detect them? And the only way we can do it is to have gigantic detectors that we've made that have large amounts of essentially a cleaning fluid in them. Cleaning fluid with a lot of chlorine. The neutrinos will, one in a billion, 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 billion of them, will occasionally interact with the chlorine atom. So they don't like to interact, but every once in a while they do. So we can detect, we know the probability of them being able to come to us, of being able to interact with our detectors. And we're looking for just individuals. We're looking for, hey, there's one interaction. We, there's one. Well, that one represents how many hundreds of billions of neutrinos that passed through that. Most of them didn't, didn't interact at all. So being able to have a very large detector 
gigantic things of cleaning fluid, gigantic cleaning fluid essentially, and being able to detect the little tiny bits of light that are given off when those neutrinos do occasionally interact. Now let me see, did I? Yep, here's a picture of example of one of these uh, done in a mine in South Dakota. So we actually do have neutrino observatories. Um, there's, that would be the cleaning fluid down here. To give you a sense of scale, there's a few people in a little raft. So just to give you how big this thing actually is, all of this is detectors. So all of these are little detectors that would look for when a neutrino passes through and interacts with one of those chlorine atoms that gives out a bit of light and we can detect that. We've got to look for those individual, individual bits. So they're looking again, looking around, trying to see it from the other, from the outside. Uh, it does not look like it, no. Looks like they got a hard hat on, but nothing, nothing else. Doesn't look like they have anything else on it. So being able to detect those really can tell us about the interior of the sun. Tell us about the interior of the sun. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I keep just, I'm just going by what I'm seeing in the picture. So I assume they have some sort of protective gear to some extent, but I don't know how much they have. Yeah? There has to be more to gain than just being able to see into the sun. With all that money mm -hmm. to make something like that, what can you possibly achieve by being able to see the big tree? Well, I don't understand why they spend that much money on a little particle. Well, I mean, of course it's science and that's yeah. important and everything, but that's, that's ridiculous. That's a lot. It's a lot, but is it a lot more than any other telescope necessarily? Really? But what we want to learn, maybe this will help a little bit. What we want to learn about is, you know, what is going on in the sun right now? So the core of the sun. There's no other way to look into the core of the sun. So what is the sun is our model right? Is our model that tells us how the sun is producing energy? Everything I just showed you? Protons, pads, matching, all that. Is that correct? That makes predictions as to how many neutrinos will come out. Can we detect them? That will confirm our model of, this, of the sun. And in fact, what was found when this experiment was first done, is it now about 20, 20, 20, some, 20 25 years ago, is that we found about one third of the neutrinos expected. So we expected to get so many interactions every day, we got about a third of that number. That's a pretty big discrepancy. So that sort of means, do we really un did we really understand the core of the sun? Was our model wrong? Did we not understand the temperatures of the sun or anything else? So what was wrong? What, was wrong? what we ended up finding out of it was that we found that there were fewer neutrinos, but we found out a new thing about the properties of neutrinos. Neutrinos can change, and you'll like this one. They can change their flavor. No, they don't have any taste. Uh, particle physicists are really good at coming up with all these unusual names. They call different types of neutrinos different flavors. So, no, they don't have a specific taste, but that's, what, that's just the terminology that is used. But neutrinos, because they have a teeny tiny bit of mass, can actually oscillate between three flavors. 
oscillate between three types or flavors. And our experiment was set up to observe one of those. We could only observe the one, the most common one, the one that was actually formed. But in that eight and a half minutes that it took those neutrinos to get from the sun to the earth, they changed. So by the time they got to earth, it wasn't just one flavor of neutrino, there were three. Well, our, our telescope was only set up to get the vanilla ones and not the strawberry or the chocolate, right? So you can only detect the vanilla ones, you can't detect the other two, they go right through our detector, they're not detectable at all by this type of equipment. So what it really told us eventually was that yes we do, our models work because we are detecting the right amount, but we really did learn something about the neutrinos. We learned about these particles and that it is possible for them to oscillate and to change their type, to change what type they are. Yes, Oops, go ahead. I'm sorry? No, I just made those up. The other names would be much more boring. There's the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tauon neutrino. Don't worry about the names. But I, th I thought vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry fit a little bit better. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, I think they've come up with other ones that can detect, uh, can detect the other, other types now. Because this one was designed because that's what was being produced in the sun, so that's what would be originally designed. Certainly other kinds can now be, can now be detected. Uh, there are, I believe, just the three. Just those three types that, we, that, we, that, exist, that exist. Could there be more? We're still discovering more particles, so we're still looking. But the patterns that we're starting to find in some of the subatomic particles seem to tell us that there's certain groupings of, you know, three of these and three of these and sixes. There's certain types of groupings that seem to, seem to occur. All right, question. Yeah, go ahead. How do they know the scale? The, like how like, the one neutrino like, interacts, but like... The other ones will interact, just not with the equipment that we set up. That equipment was set up for a specific reaction with one type of neutrino. The other ones don't like to interact either, but if you had a different type of fluid, then there'd be something that they would occasionally interact with. You know how many are being produced. I'm not, if I'm getting your question, you know how many are produced in the core of the sun based on our model? So a billion, billion, billion every second, just to throw a number out there. And we should detect one of those. So if we detect one every three seconds, then wait a second, something's wrong because we should have detected one. And when you do that over a long enough period of time, you can then pick out the, the right numbers. Okay? Well, let me finish up here on chapter nine, and we're just about set. Um, the sun is held together by gravity, so gravity is pulling the sun together. Gravity wants to collapse it down to nothing, but it's got nuclear fusion. It's got energy generating at the center that wants to tear the sun apart. It's got billions upon billions, of essentially, of nuclear warheads going off in it every single second. And the combination of those two keep the sun completely stable. Its gravity is pulling it down extremely strong, and it's got just enough force balancing that to keep it balanced for about 10 billion years. We looked at the layers of the sun. Outer layers were the photosphere, the chromosphere, and the corona. Starting closest to the sun is the photosphere. That's what we see, the sphere of light. 
chromosphere a little further outside that and then the corona even further. The corona was extremely hot, about a million or two million degrees. Not hot enough for nuclear reactions, but getting, getting, pretty, getting close. In order to understand the interior of the sun, we can't look at it, except through neutrinos, we can. And we use that and we use the seismology. So we use study of the oscillations of the sun between mathematical models and the, the oscillations of the sun can really tell us about the interior. We talked about the activity in the sunspots. Sunspots are where the magnetic fields are the strongest. The dark spots on the surface of the sun are actually the coolest areas on the surface of the sun. They might be 1,000, 1,500 degrees cooler than the rest of the sun itself. And we looked at the patterns of them. Did we? Oops, nope, I didn't mention that. We did on here. We looked at the patterns that we get a nuclear, we get a solar cycle every 11 or 22 years. And that's just when the sunspots come, come and go. Nuclear fusion is what I kind of went through today. Converting hydrogen into helium and releases energy. That's, you know, good old Einstein here. Convert a little tiny bit of mass into a lot of energy. Or take a lot of energy to produce a little tiny bit of mass. Works, but it will work both ways. And neutrinos were the last thing we were talking about today. Come directly from the core, stream outward, and we really, they didn't tell us a lot about the sun. Looked like they might be at first when we only found about a third of them. We might, might have thought our models were wrong and we had to rework all of our models. It turns out that wasn't the case. It turns out that the neutrinos just had their three flavors. They were able to change between from one to another and we could only detect one third of those. So really the solar neutrinos told us more about the neutrinos than they did about the sun itself. They confirmed our th findings on the sun and what we thought, but they really didn't give us anything new about the sun. Although it's always good to get confirmation that your theories are correct, it didn't really give us anything new and you know, groundbreaking in terms of the sun. So that's the end for your exam. Yay! So exam will be on Monday. And on Friday, I will go ahead and start on chapter 10. We'll go ahead and get started on chapter 10 and work on that uh, Monday and Wednesday, or Friday and then Wednesday again. Questions? Questions? No? Alrighty. Have a good afternoon.